0: Luke chapter number 18, Luke chapter number 18 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. This is one of my favorite passages in the word of God uh, and really probably uh, certainly one of my favorite ones on the topic of prayer. And I want to preach to you on your prayer life tonight for just a few moments. Luke chapter number 18, verse number one, the Bible says this, and he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth let 's pray together, Father, we love you, thank you for the Word of God, help us as we preach it tonight and as it penetrates our hearts that we might have a spirit an attitude of of obedience of of reception and of self examination Lord may we be may we be hungry to know your heart, your word, your will for our lives and may we be willing and and desiring to grow in you Lord I, I pray for families that are bereaved this evening and so many requests that were mentioned that would escape my memory but i 'm glad none of them escapes you, Lord, that you know and are aware of all of these things. I pray you'd minister to these requests according to your will and minister that which would make us most like Christ. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of the reasons I love this passage of scripture is because it is unique in that it explicitly tells us why the Lord told this parable. Now, if you rightly divide the word of truth, you're not very often going to feel overwhelmed or bewildered by the parables that our Lord taught. But we understand that the purpose of a parable was to conceal truth from those that did not want to receive it while simultaneously revealing truth to those that did want to receive it. And that's why our Lord would use this phrase. He'd say, he that hath ears to hear. And of course, that phrase is repeated several times In the book of Revelation, what does he mean by that? Well, he's saying if you want to receive it, then you'll receive it. If you don't, then this isn't designed for you. It's designed rather to conceal this truth. From you, And so often when you study through the parables, uh, though uh, with rightly dividing the word of truth with a biblical perspective, you won't necessarily struggle to understand what the Lord is teaching. This parable is unique in that the Lord says explicitly the truth that he's trying to communicate, and it deals with our prayer life. Now, what is prayer? Prayer is talking to God. I think that's probably the plainest, simplest, clearest definition of it. We talked a little bit about this on Monday night in our Apollos course. There are all sorts of uh, pseudo-mystic movements going uh, through, running through the undercurrent of Christianity that has uh, you know, convoluted and confused the idea of what prayer is. And they've made prayer all sorts of things except what the Bible reveals prayer to be. And I was speaking explicitly about the contemplative prayer uh you know, activity in in a lot of these contemporary movements and conferences where they'll get everybody to stand there and, uh, you know, close their eyes and lift their their heads and hold their hands out and, uh, you know, uh, empty their minds is what they'll tell them. They'll say, you need to empty your mind, empty your mind. There's some people I know, that's the last thing they need, man. (laughs) They got enough real estate there as it is. Uh, But they'll say, well, empty your mind, empty your mind and and wait to feel something. Man, what is that? Man, straight out of the book of satanic pagan Eastern religions. Uh, Not to mention the fact that it doesn't bear even a passing resemblance to prayer in the Bible. What is prayer? Prayer is intelligent communication with God. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be smart to do it. Thank the Lord. But what it does mean is I'm not just sitting there waiting for something to happen to me or trying to sense something or feel something or enter into some kind of trance or, or alternate condition. But rather, prayer is me communicating with God, talking with God, telling him my heart, my thoughts, my desires and my troubles. And so prayer is the issue at hand in this parable. And the Lord wants to teach us some things about our prayer life. I want you to notice three thoughts with me in our text tonight and then we'll be done. Look with me at verse number one, this plain statement concerning why this parable is given. It says, and he spake a parable unto them to this end. This is what he's driving at that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Notice that in this verse, a principle is established. In fact, we could say there's three portions to this principle. Number one, uh, the principle is this. We are to participate in prayer. We ought to pray. That's what the Bible says, that men ought always To pray. In other words, prayer is something that is not just commended, but is commanded in the life of the believer. You and I, we're not just recommended to pray. We are required to pray. It is the commandment of God that we communicate with him and speak clearly with him and bear to him our hearts, uh, desires and thoughts and wishes. Now, that may seem boilerplate. You may say, preacher, I drive all the way out here on a Wednesday night and hear you tell me Christians ought to pray. But I would just say this to you tonight that, How often are we lacking in the area of prayer in our life if we truly understand fundamentally how important prayer is a part of that life? Uh, You say, now, preacher, I understand Christians ought to pray, but how do you define that prayer? Is prayer merely a uh, formalistic ritual of words that you process through before you sit down to a meal? Is it merely something that is a part of an external religious life that's exercised in front of men? Or are you daily in open communication with the Lord? When the Bible says that men ought always to pray, and we're told in the New Testament men ought to pray without ceasing, what exactly does it mean when it says that? Does that mean that every waking hour of our life is to be spent actively engaged in prayer? No, of course not. Our Lord did not even do that. There were times, of course, that He was uh, praying distinctly to His Father, but there are plenty of times that He was about other business, and yet He is the perfect example in all things, is still yet the perfect example in that. So what does it mean when it says you, Ought to pray without ceasing. Well, there's a second thing here. First, we are to participate in prayer. But number two, we are to be persistent in prayer. He says men ought always to pray. What does he mean by always to pray? I would define it this way, that it is living in constant, open communication with God. Let's say it this way, uh, talking to him like he's there because he is. He is. He is right there not compartmentalizing our life. And I think that sometimes in our endeavor to to challenge people to maintain a personal devotion time, that maybe sometimes we've even done damage to this concept because we've made people believe that prayer is a religious activity that you engage in upon a schedule. Now listen, I recommend to you to have time when all you're doing is praying. But don't think for one moment that the only time you ought to pray is during those times of prayer. You ought to be constantly talking to the Lord. And our Lord did this as a perfect example all throughout his ministry. He'd be going along and he'd just begin talking to his father. He'd be teaching other people and he'd just begin talking to his father. Almost as though he believed he was right there because he was right there. And in the same way in your life and mine. See, here's, here's the problem. The problem is not that we are all not always praying. The problem is that we are only sometimes praying. I'm going to say that again. I want you to get that. The problem is not that we are not always praying. The problem is that we are only sometimes praying. We've compartmentalized our prayer life away and, as I said, made it this religious activity that we engage in on a schedule and sometimes not even on a schedule, just sporadically, intermittently with no deliberate design behind it. But the pattern and example of the Lord Jesus is that he kept often open, always communication with the Father. So we could say we're to participate in prayer. We are to be persistent in prayer. But then notice this last phrase. He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray. And then he says this, and not to faint. In other words, we're to participate in prayer, we're to be persistent. But number three, we're to persevere in prayer. You say, preacher, and and I, I didn't want to tip my hand before I got to it. I didn't want to preach my message before I got to this part of my message. But you say, preacher, how do you define always praying? You define it by never quitting. How do you define always praying, preacher? You saying all that I'm supposed to do? I'm not supposed to work a job. I'm not supposed to take care of my, my home. I'm not supposed to spend time with my family. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible's saying. Rather, what the Bible is saying is is not that that being always about in prayer is not about the constancy of prayer. It's about not quitting in prayer. And that's the thing that the Lord wants to communicate here. You see, here's the reality. This reveals that the biggest downfall in prayer is not really a lack of engaging in prayer, but rather it's a lack of enduring in prayer. It's not that we don't start. It's that we quit so quickly. And I don't mean the duration of those seasons of prayer, but I mean, we start to pray about things. And if we don't get our way within uh, 20 minutes or 20 hours or 20 days, we just go in the towel, give up, quit praying about that matter. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are times that God clearly declares to us no about a matter. And I'm certainly not suggesting that we should try to superimpose or run roughshod over the declared explicit will of God in a matter. But if we're to be truthful, there's a lot of times we didn't quit praying because we got an answer. We quit praying because we got tired. We just got tired of doing it. And that's what the Lord's dealing with here. The biggest obstacle to prayer is quitting. You think about the disciples. You know, they started praying with the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. They wanted to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, but they quit. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak and they quit. And the biggest danger in your prayer life and mine is not that we don't in fits and spurs start our prayer life, but it's that so often we just quit when God doesn't immediately shower whatever our desires are upon us. So we see in this passage, a principle is established. Notice number two, a parable is expounded. He begins to teach the danger of this quitting. And he begins to reveal to us why this happens in our life in verse number two. This is what he said. There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. There was a widow in that city. She came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect? So here's the scene that the Lord is setting. He wants to describe people's worst perspectives about God in their prayer life. He's wanting to show, you regard God in this way. Were God to be this way, prayer would still be a noble and effective pursuit. But then he turns it on its head and says, but you know, God's not like that man in any way. He, through this parable, in many ways, not only exposes what's going on in their heart, but he embarrasses them for what's going on in their heart in reminding them that even were God the way you thought he was, it'd still be worth praying. But God's not at all uh, the way that you describe him. He's not. You do a disservice to him in viewing him in the same category as this man. So what does that tell us about why we quit in our prayer line? Let's be transparent enough, let's be honest enough to look at our life and say, what is it that causes me when I'm praying about a matter, my heart is broken, I'm desiring God to do something, what is the excuse I give myself for ceasing to pray? Notice there's three things that are revealed. And remember, this man is in many ways an an antithesis to God's nature. He's the opposite of the way God is. But in some ways, he is a parody or a caricaturization of how we view God. And it reveals where our heart is. Notice three things that are said about him and how this reveals our perspective about God that often causes us to cease praying. Notice verse 2, how it begins. It says, there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. Now, on the surface of it, especially with our perspective of law and of justice, we might look at that and say, well, that man would make a good and noble judge. He's unbiased. He is impartial or unbiased and impartial. He's a man that's not swayed by the environment that he's in. But I'd suggest to you that that perspective on what a judge should be is naive and is dangerous. Let me tell you what a judge needs to be. A judge better fear God or he's not going to do justice inasmuch as the bible says he regarded not man it's speaking of the law of man and here's what it's describing a lawless judge man if there's ever been a time when we see lawless judges activists uh activist judges i'm talking about rogue individuals who because of their station in life, and I thank God that they're not all this way, but there are some in society that due to what they believe to be an invincible position, just choose to legislate anything that they want to with no regard for what is right and with no regard for what is lawful. If you took your cause to a man like that, you wouldn't have very much faith that anything would get done. Uh, We are quickly, rapidly speeding towards a place of lawlessness in our society as people are losing foundational respect for the institutions of our society. I'm not sure if the people that are corrupting these institutions are really ready for what happens when men lose total faith in everything. Uh, There's not much left after that except chaos and violence. And we're rapidly speeding towards that place in society. And you know why that is? And how often do you think this? Something will happen and uh, somebody will say, well, you ought to call someone. You ought to report that. You ought to, you ought to call and you'll say this to yourself. Well, what good would it do? What you're saying is there's no law. There's no justice. As the book of Amos says that, that because the law's not regarded, that, that justice is slack. There's, there, there's no potency to it. There's no effectiveness to it. And you'd say, why would I bother going to someone? Who doesn't regard God or man. We could say it this way. You know why we quit in prayer? Because sometimes we doubt God's honor. Let's say it this way. We see in him a lack of administration. We say to ourselves. Why does God let this happen to me? Uh, If God really was interested in me, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen in the first place. And sometimes as we pray and as we seek the Lord, sometimes we're tempted to say he just simply lacks the power. And sometimes we're tempted to say, God is unfair to me. God is unjust to me. God has no regard, has no care for me. And we begin to doubt his honor. Can I remind you something? We have a holy and just God. There's a lot of things and that, you know, that's the truth prevailing in the book of Jude. We're teaching through it on Monday nights and and they're in the book of Jude. uh, Jude gives an example of the angels which kept not their first estate and how they've been kept uh, in everlasting chains under darkness, appointed under that judgment of the great day. Why is Jude saying that? He's saying this, it looks like God is an unjust God. It looks like he don't keep his promises. It looks like he don't deal with evildoers, but I promise you sooner or later he will. And in our prayer life, sometimes we're tempted to simply think God messed up. God has made a mistake. Uh, God has failed me. God has allowed this to happen in my life. And that's a failure on his part. If if God really cared for me and loved me, and we'll get to that here in a moment, but he would not have allowed this to happen. You won't admit it. I won't admit it. But if we were to be as honest as God needs us to be, there's plenty of times we have thought God has dropped the ball. We say to ourselves, what good would it do? I always chuckle to myself. I'll I'll drive by church signs. I think I mentioned this a a service or two ago. But, I, you know, I've seen this church sign. You've seen it before. They'll say things like, well, when all else fails, pray. And there's this perspective on prayer, like it's this last ditch Hail Mary throw into the end zone, just in hopes that maybe, perhaps, possibly something might result from it. And that perspective is deeply rooted in this notion that God is not directly administrating the affairs of this world or that God might perhaps, mayhaps he might do something right. But can I tell you, God does all things right. The way Abraham said it is, shall, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. He's never done anything wrong. He's only ever done right. He's never made a mistake. And he's not going to start with you. And he's not going to start with me. So they doubt his honor. But then it goes on to say this in verse three. And again, we're talking about the unlikelihood that this widow would get her petition answered. It says in verse three, and there was a widow in that city. And she came unto him saying, avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. I don't know about you, but that seems pretty open and shut. She goes to him. This is a man that is lawless. This is a man that is self-absorbed. This is a man that cares only for himself. She's a widow woman. He doesn't care. He has no pity upon her. He has no compassion or mercy towards her. She comes and says, avenge me of mine adversary. He says, no, case closed, done. It's over. She doesn't stop there. She keeps going back. But here's the reality. Sometimes when God says no or sometimes when he answers with silence, we not only doubt his honor, but we doubt his heart. We view it as a lack of administration when we doubt his honor, but sometimes we view it when we doubt his heart as a lack of compassion. Obviously, the Bible revealing this woman to be a widow woman, the intent behind the Lord saying this is to suggest that this man should have rightly uh appropriately, I, I, it responded in in compassion towards her. I mean, this woman has nobody but him. She has no resources. She has no means. She has no advocate, only an adversary. And she comes to him hoping that he'll take pity upon her. And he says, no, I'm uninterested. Now, we don't want to admit it. Like I said, I don't. You don't. But There's been times we've whispered in our heart, God, you don't care about me. If you cared, you wouldn't let this happen. If you cared, you'd change this. If you cared, you'd fix this. God, if you really cared, you would change my circumstances. It's shameful to acknowledge it, but remember what the Lord's doing. He, he's, part of what He's doing is embarrassing this, this perspective and this disposition that we have. And rightly so, man, we ought to embarrass the flesh. And He's reminding that whether we want to admit it or not, there are times that we impugn God's mercy, that we, that we indict God's compassion, we suggest that if he really cared, he would have never allowed this to happen. Sometimes our idea and our, our uh, perspective on it becomes, well, if he doesn't care, why should I care? And if he does care, why doesn't he change this? If he does care, why did he let it happen? If he does care, then why doesn't something change in this situation? And we begin to say, if he doesn't care, why do I care? And why would I pray to a God that doesn't love me? Why would I pray to a God that doesn't care? They doubt his heart. But then notice uh, the Bible says in verse four that he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though, I fear not God nor regard man. Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming. She weary me. Now, this gets down to the brass tacks of the truth of this passage. Uh, The Lord is looking at these disciples and saying, you know, even if the man's lawless, even if he's cruel, Even if he's self-interested, narcissistic, cares nothing about anyone but himself. You'd still go and make your petition because you'd understand that sooner or later you'd wear him down. Sometimes prayer can be a matter of attrition. And you would go to him and you would keep praying and you would keep asking, you'd keep seeking. And sooner or later, just for his own interest, he would answer your prayer. And then he turns and puts the crosshairs on his own followers and says, so now why have you quit on God? Let's say it this way, they doubt his honor, they doubt his heart. But then we see very often where it finally lands is they begin to doubt his hearing. We could call it this, a lack of attention. Why do people quit praying? Well, because uh fundamentally they believe it doesn't work. If you believed it worked more, you'd pray more. If I believe it worked more, I'd pray more. I'm just throwing stones at you. Saying at the end of the day, if we really believe we have this direct line of communication to a thrice holy almighty God that is sovereign in control of all matters and can deal with all things and is bigger than any problem we'd face, why wouldn't we talk to him? How often do you run into a problem in life and your immediate instinct is to say, you know, I've got a buddy I could call. He knows about this. Have something break at your house. Oh, I know somebody that knows this stuff. Have something go wrong with your car. Oh, I know somebody that's a mechanic. Have something go wrong in a in a relationship. And you say, well, I, I know somebody that has a good marriage. Or I know somebody that's got a good relationship with their kids. And you immediately go because you say, they can fix it. They can help me. They can do something about it. Because only a madman would have those resources and not avail himself of them. How mad we are that we have a God like the God that we have. And we do not pray to him more. Here we see a parable is expounded. But then notice in verse six, a promise is extended. It says, and the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge saith." And shall not God, you see how it turns it on his head. This is how this man is. And even with him, prayer worked. But that's not how your God is. Shall not God avenge his own elect? which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. There's a few things going on in this passage. You'll notice the usage of the word elect here, and that word elect predominantly deals with the nation of Israel. And in the dispensational context here, it is likewise dealing with the nation of Israel. Is there an application of that word to the believer? Well, sure there is. Of course, we have been placed in Christ and God chose Christ and we are now in Christ because we placed our faith in Him. You know, in the Old Testament, you probably heard me say this, but in the Old Testament, the word elect is used only one time to refer to an individual. Every other time it's referring to a peoples and predominantly the nation of Israel. One time in the book of Isaiah, the Bible talks about mine servant, mine elect. And it's a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, preacher, are you elect? Well, not the way the Calvinists want me to be. I'm elect the way they think that a person is elect. I just didn't get there the way they think I should have got there. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I didn't get there because God's picking out a baseball team. I didn't get there because he looked at how handsome and good looking and rugged and tone and fit I am. And say, I need him. Rather, I got born again because I was a whosoever. I came to Jesus Christ and of my own free will choice, I put my faith in Christ. And my own free will choice was the only thing about my salvation that was mine own. Everything else was what He did for me, but I did have to let Him save me, and I did make the choice to believe in Him, and I did put my faith in Him, and He didn't choose it for me. I chose Him. He gave me the free will to choose Him. I could have died and went to hell, just as any lost person can choose to die and go to hell. But bless God, they can choose to die and go to heaven too. And So I when the word elect, the Calvinists don't have some copyright on that word. It's a biblical word, but not in the way that they've twisted it and corrupted it. Jesus is using this word because he's speaking about Israel as a people and the remnant that would remain under the day that he appears in glory. And that's why he says what he says at the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? He's talking about at the end of the tribulation period, the remnant of Israel throughout the tribulation period. But there's an overarching truth here that must be noticed as well. He says this, shall not God avenge his own elect? He said, preacher, I'm a Gentile. Am I part of the elect? Well, maybe not in the way he's talking about it here. But can I tell you what you are a part of? His own. <laughs> Shall he not avenge his own? And I would say this. The Lord reminds his followers that whenever you pray, God's heart is moved. He does care. You're his child. You belong to him. You are you are not only his, his precious treasure. You are also his problematic child. And as such, he owns not just the precious things, but the problematic things about you. He owns the blessings of your life and he owns the burdens of your life. And as such, whenever we pray and talk to him, his heart is moved. I've given you this example before, but I remember hearing a preacher tell an illustration of being in a in a music store, and uh, he uh, w- it was one of these real high end places that has stuff that I don't know how to play, and and they but they had harps in there, big tall harps, tall as a man was, and they were talking about music and the science behind it, and the shop owner he told him he said, listen, I want to show you something interesting about these harps. He went to one and he pointed at one that was all the way across the store. He said, I want you to go stand by that harp. And the preacher, uh, or not the preacher, but the music owner, he plucked on the harp that he was standing by. And when he did, the strings on the harp on the other end of the store began to resonate with that same tone. He was explaining to the preacher uh, that because those harps were so in tune and on the same frequency that whenever it started to emanate sound waves here, it picked up on it there and began to reverberate. And The preacher giving the illustration said, you know, what a picture that is of God that we come to Him. Hey, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. We We've got a high priest that feels. The Bible tells us there's one God, one mediator between God, the man, uh, God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He's still, though he's always and forever been 100 percent God, he is still to this day 100 percent God, but still likewise 100 percent man. Why did he retain that existence that he might bear our infirmities, that he might feel our hurts, that he might identify with us and secure us as a faithful high priest? When we pray, man, his heart is moved. But notice there's another truth here. He says this, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear along with them. Tells me this, if he knows that they cry day and night unto him, he must be listening. Whenever my children, uh, the, starting with Lawrence, but even up until just, you know, not too long ago, when, when my, my wife, when we were having Lawrence, she registered for this baby monitor. And, uh, it was one of these techie deals that had, it's got the monitor that goes under the bed that can tell whether the baby's breathing and all that stuff and, you know, stuff that babies survived without for thousands of years, whatever. And, and, and <laughs> by the way, if you got it for us, thank you. I do appreciate it. But, uh, got, got this, this baby monitor and one of the things somebody told her, When baby was little said, one of the things that will help him sleep is get some soft music and put on in the room and and play for him. And so we got a CD player and got this CD of baby hymns or whatever it was and, and put on there and it would play. And so every night for years I went to bed to the sound of gospel hymn lullabies because I'd lay there and my wife, insistent as she was, would turn that baby monitor up as loud as she possibly could I'd be laying there in bed like a Chinese water torture listening to these CDs. Did you know you can play a CD for eight years straight and it won't wear out? Did you know that? It'll wear through multiple CD players, but the the CD itself won't. You have to smash it with a hammer to make it go away. The CD player won't wear it out. And then about the time he grew out of it and we knew he wasn't going to, I don't know, burst into flames in the bed or something, we had Schofield. And they sleep in the same room with each other. And so then we got several more years of listening to this uh, hymn lullaby thing. And uh, finally, I can't remember what it was, but probably a year ago or something, I said, listen, honey, I don't even care if the baby does survive the night. I have got to get this music out of my brain. (laughs) But she liked having that on because as a mama, she liked to hear him cry. And I'll tell you this, I don't know if my kids sleep well, but I know I do. I can't hear a thing going on in their bedroom. But I sleep well, finally. The fact of knowing whether they're crying day and night tells us this. Hey, listen, I don't know whether they cry or not because I ain't listening to them. I'm sleeping. How did God know that his people were crying day and night? Because he's listening to him. He's listening to say it this way. His heart's moved, but his ears are open. He hears everything that is at the same time, both a startling truth and a settling truth. To know there's nothing we do say that he's not aware of, but also to know that there's nothing we do or say that he's not aware of. I promise you this, if, if he bears along with you, it's not because he's deaf. It's not because his ears are heavy that he cannot hear. And it's not because his arms shorten that he cannot say. He hears all things and knows all things. And then notice this. He says in verse number eight, I like this language. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Like that phrase, avenge. It denotes the carrying out or restitution of justice. It tells me this. His honor is just. He's never done anything wrong. He's never let anything slide. He always in perfect holiness, righteousness and justice has dealt with every matter of life. Now you say, preacher, there's a lot of injustice in this world. Well, he ain't done yet. He ain't done yet. I promise you when he's done, every hill will be lowered. And every valley will be raised. Uh, You say, preacher, but I'll have to wait sometimes. But understand that in the economy of things, you say, the Bible says speedily. But they're crying day and night. How do you take these two disconsolate, incompatible phrases? Bear long with them and speedily. That's an oxymoron. Well, it depends on which side of this issue you're sitting on. To those crying day and night, it seems like he's bearing long. But if you saw things from where God's sitting You'd know it was speedily. Aren't you glad one day we're going to be seeing things from where God said? So I see here that there is a promise extended. And then I'm not even going to preach it. I'm just going to mention it. But notice at verse 8 at the end, there's a problem that's exposed. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? What really is the problem in our prayer life? Faith. Faith. He's speaking distinctly about Israel and that remnant in the tribulation period. But as it applies to your life and to mine, I just ask you this. Do we have faith in our prayer life? I don't mean faith in it as an institution. I mean, as we exercise ourselves in prayer, are we doing so in faith? Trusting that we have a God that hears and answers and that is capable and that cares. I think if we believe that, it's going to spur us on to pray more. To as this parable says, to always pray. wonder what could be lacking in my prayer life, your prayer life. Let's see to it tonight. Let's bow our heads. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed as a musician comes to play, the altar's open. Are you honest enough to be honest about your prayer life? Are you honest enough to acknowledge maybe the areas and the causes of why something may be amiss, awry? Won't you meet God in this altar? Won't you talk to the Lord, bear your heart to him? Might be some things you need to ask forgiveness for. Might be some things you need to ask for help, strength for. Whatever the matter is, won't you meet God and address this issue? Lord, we love you. We thank you for the word of God. Bless this invitation in Christ's name.